Hey, I'm Nate Hansen. And I'm Tim Ritter. And we are Almost Heretical. You can find out more about us or the show at almostheretical.com. And if you want even more than this podcast, you can go check out our Patreon page, where we do a few different things for supporters, including a whole second podcast called Utterly Heretical. Check it out. (laughs) Okay, before we jump in here, this is future Nate speaking. This conversation ended up being pretty crazy and pretty intense and kind of long. So we're going to chop this one into two parts. So this is going to be part three and... uh, only half of the conversation that we had and then the next episode will be part four continuing this conversation and yeah okay so here's the episode okay so this is the third installment in the heaven portion of the hell and heaven series and uh last time we talked about heaven as a revolution which was interesting i I would say go back and listen to that one if you haven't it was it was definitely interesting. I still had some some issues or some pushbacks, but I want to know what are we talking about today? Well, I think what we should actually do is, is sort of pick up where we left off uh, with the idea of revolution or this reversal of power. And then we'll transition into how did the biblical authors picture what human beings are? And we'll see that that question is completely related to uh, to this idea of revolution. Um, and so we actually, we probably won't even get to talking about he- heaven as a sphere or realm or place much uh, for a little while. But we'll see that basically, I don't even think we can understand why there's a concept of the heavens or heaven if we don't understand some of these other background ideas. So... Uh, so we jumped into this idea that one of the basic building blocks of the the Jewish conception is that God was going to perform an Exodus-like revolution where he, God would liberate the, the poor and oppressed and marginalized, those who are being crushed under uh, the empires of the world, and put them in power over uh, those empires of the world. There would be a flipping. Um, and that involves who's ruling the world, Israel's special calling, but then it also gets into this war for power between the cosmic realms. So, so we'll kind of uh, go back to that conversation. I want to hear sort of your, uh, your lingering discomfort and kind of uh, talk through that. Um, but then we'll also get into some more details of the cosmic side and then some of this idea of, okay, if that's one of the building blocks, then what that means is that heaven is essentially a place of empowerment or a, uh, a reality of empowerment that is the counterpart to hell being the realm or sphere or reality of disempowerment. Uh, and we'll kind of tease that out a little bit. So we're going to cover a lot of ground. But first, Nate, after our last conversation, uh, how you doing? I mean, I slept on it. Uh, I think the the couple thorns in my side are that, um, well, w- one, and we'll, we'll get to this, but like is, is war. And the fact that you talked about there's this like cosmic war that's going to happen where the the poor will be made the powerful and the powerful will be made the you know unpowerful and so i want to get i want to talk about that because maybe that's not even maybe maybe i don't even have that correct in my head but but the other one is just 
whenever, and we've talked about this before, but when you just flip the tables and you make the, the unpowerful now be the powerful and the powerful be the unpowerful, won't it just happen again? Uh, and I know that hopefully there's like different ethics for um, the poor to have when they, when they take over and they're the powerful ones and they won't do the same things again. But I just don't have an example of that in history, really. I don't know if you can think of one, but those are sort of the two main problems I have. And then the third one would be, this still feels very angel-y, like very cosmic. And I think what is, what's helpful is people can imagine with the current depictions of, of heaven, let's say, like this place that actual people are going. And I don't know, it just seems really like angelic and demonic powers and cosmic realm and all this stuff. And I just want to make sure, like I started last episode with, I want to make sure that this is actually like something is being done to actually improve the the world and improve like the actual world that we see around us, not this other realm that we don't even see. Right. It's a lot, huh? Yeah. No, I, th- I think all three of those concerns are valid uh, and, and good concerns to raise in this conversation. Uh, w- We'll get to the the battle one in a second. I think it's it's really important to think long and hard about all of this war language and war imagery uh, because of how much violence, uh, which I would call evil, has been done in the name of this uh, imagery, right? Yeah, it just sounds like another case of someone thinking they have all the answers and they're the chosen one, you know, imposing or forcing that onto other people and i would i hate to like have that be my uh, but oh but this is the this is finally the real one or the right one you know like yeah really like is it really (laughs) totally is it really the one that's like justified for going to war over and going to this you know battle over to you know what i'm saying like how would we know that and i just assume it's probably not yeah so well Okay, let's just jump into it now. We'll say, so your other two questions are sort of uh, part of where I thought we needed to come back to this. Anyway, one is sort of, if there's a revolution, new group is in charge, what's to keep them from doing uh, the very same thing, right? Mm -hmm. And then third question of sort of, or question or concern is like, (laughs) if we're just talking about weird cosmic being stuff, like how does that play out in a, a good, fruitful, practical uh, conception. And I think part of what we'll see, and I think part of what actually is important in leading to a fruitful and life-giving uh, Christian theology surrounding the idea of heaven and hell and all of this uh, stuff, is to realize how much underlying belief there is uh, behind and, and uh, under the biblical writer's ideas of heaven that we may not actually be able to or want to believe in. And I think we just have to wrestle with that. Um, and especially, you know, what I mean is when we get into this weird cosmic cosmic realm stuff and there being multiple divine gods and we're at a war, in a war with these divine beings, like that sort of thing. Um, I think much of what has happened in Christian history is as we've moved away from that kind of cosmology, that kind of worldview, like where most of us in this modern scientific period of history, we don't believe there are angels and demons lurking around every corner. Um, 
we we don't think that way. We think in a much more material uh, mindset, and I think for good reason <laughs> in many ways, right? Uh, we have material scientific explanations for a lot of the things that people used to attribute uh, to divine workings, right? Like the one we talked about a couple episodes ago, what, what makes wind, right? Yeah. And um, so we, we can't go backward from that. We really can't. And so I think there's been this trend in history to as our own worldview uh, moves away from the worldview of the, the biblical writers and the early Christians, we diminish and downplay and even oftentimes ignore evidence of that different worldview, evidence of how different we are thinking about <laughs> the world around us. And then what ends up happening is we sort of, I'm going to call this spiritualize, uh, I'll kind of try to explain this in a little bit, but we spiritualize pieces of theology uh, to to make them fit. So it's like we materialize things because our view is is much more scientific-based, material-based than the biblical authors, and then we re-spiritualize our material worldview to then line up with say, this idea of we're involved in a spiritual battle against the, quote, principalities and powers. Give me an example of that. Yeah, so what I'll try to unpack in a little bit, you know, I think most Christians are familiar (laughs) (laughs) with this, the language uh, of Paul in Ephesians, that our our battle is is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. Yeah. And so you've got, you know, different church cultures and subcultures surrounding how we think about spiritual warfare from the very charismatic side where we're slaying things on the reg. Oh yeah. Uh, to, (laughs) to another side, uh, you know, that's much more, uh, cautious about anything like that. But basically the idea is, uh, there's, I think we don't have an origin story in our head for how we are at war with a cosmic realm of beings. But Paul does. (laughs) He has a clear origin story, which we can go read, actually, Uh, at least a couple versions of that origin story, Uh, a mythology of how human beings came to be at war with divine beings. So we don't have that story. So Paul makes that statement, like, hey, remember... That uh, we're not supposed to kill each other or fight each other. We're at war with these spiritual beings. He's just saying something that everybody assumes. We read that and like, oh, you're right. Anytime, for instance, I'm in an argument with my coworker, I have to remember that this material reality or this social reality or this political reality that I'm experiencing is is actually more than that. It's spiritual. So then, what I, this is what I'm calling spiritualization we then try to spiritualize it in this kind of vague way that we don't really understand, but it's like, remember, there's more going on here, but we don't really know what that more is. It's kind of this vague, you know, there's this cosmic realm. You know, you've got some wings of people who think they know the names of the demons and like, you know, kind of the the (laughs) more crazy sides, but I think that's a pretty small minority. Uh, I think the more common thing is just like, oh, let me let me make sure I'm staying spiritual or sort of close to Paul's spirituality because Paul thought 
everything was, you know, kind of imbued with this spiritual realm, this cosmic reality. So I'm going to try to think of my life and the actions that that I'm participating in and the things that have happened to me. I'm going to try to think of them in a spiritual way. But that's not what Paul was doing. Paul had a very clear set of beliefs <laughs> about like a, an actual historical uh reality which led to us being in a real war with cosmic beings does that does that make sense like so he has something in his head that's that's actually very real and tangible and and he and everybody around him just believes it to be true i don't think we actually believe the things that paul believed to be true and so we try to like conform uh, what we do believe to be true is like I'm fighting with my neighbor and it's not good. And then we try to conform that to some sort of spiritual thing where like, actually, this is a this is somehow a cosmic battle. And then you get people sort of, I, I would say, kind of making it up as you go. Right? right. For like what it means to put into practice in here in 2019, the idea that our our battle is actually against principality and powers. Does, does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think we do need to have, at least try to understand the worldview that Paul had and the people that he was writing to where he just assumed they had that, you know, like what was that worldview they had? So we can then read his writings and, and probably other writings in the Bible and see like, oh, this thing that we've taken and we've always said this with it, we've always done this with it. Like that's not what he was talking about, right? So I think that is important. Right. But I think all I would say is like, is it even, should we try to have that same worldview as Paul? And maybe this is like an other, utterly heretical conversation, our other podcast. Maybe this isn't for here. I just mean like, should we actually be trying to have that same worldview? Or is it just important to understand the worldview they had if we're going to say that the Bible is important and we want to understand it? Yeah, I, I think everybody has to make that up for themselves. The point is that most of us are out here feeling like we have to conform our view if we're going to be Christian, right? Or like true to, for instance, the letter of Ephesians, uh, that what we have to do is conform our worldview to somehow be more spiritual than it really is. I think most of us are feeling pressure to already do that, but we're doing it in a way that doesn't really make much sense. And my point is to say like, why don't we actually see what Paul believed and then be honest about what we believe and don't believe and then choose for yourself. And people may change their minds over time, right? Like whether various pieces are things that you can or, or will believe. And then if you are going to, you know, be on the quote heretical side and decide that, for instance, you don't believe in an origin story about a divine realm which has waged war on humanity and overtaken control of earth if you if you are going to admit that you just aren't going to believe that then one of the things that should follow is you should stop trying to conform your uh view of the world to to this sense of paul's spiritual cosmic view of the world because that's basically doing two things at once does that make sense like in, admitting you don't believe something but then trying to convince yourself that somehow your actual beliefs are closer to Paul's than they are. Like, let's not do that. <laughs> I don't think that's fruitful, mm. right? Um, so my, my point is kind of like peel the layers back and see, okay, this is what Paul means when he says we're in a spiritual battle. Do, do you think 
like Paul does. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to try to make you uh, lean one way or the other. Um, but if you don't and you come to, to those terms, then maybe we have some more creative work to do to figure out how to uh, interpret or what to do with, with all of this language throughout the New Testament of this cosmic warfare stuff. So, okay, we're talking so vague about this. Let's kind of jump into some of the details and see if it helps a little bit. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter, co-host of the Leaving Eden podcast, and I was raised in a cult. I signed purity pledges. I cried at the altar. I went out door-to-door soul winning, and I didn't own a pair of jeans until I was 20 years old. I saw it all and did it all as I grew up completely immersed, pun fully intended, in the independent fundamental Baptist movement. With my co-host Gabrielle Hakoen, I unpack all of this from the hilarious to the traumatic back to the hilarious on the Leaving Eden podcast. New episodes release every Monday on all podcast streaming platforms. We recommend new listeners. Start by checking out episode 57, in which we discuss the bite model and give an overview of my personal story. It's a So, okay, details. What did Paul actually believe? Yeah, so, okay, so here we've kind of conflated the the two ideas. There's this whole spiritual view of the world, and then there's this battle idea, this uh, we're at war idea. So uh, (laughs) let me just try to to backtrack, and then we'll end up kind of catching up to where we left off last time with it which is this language that you see in the book of Revelation and parts in the Gospels of this uh, cosmic war or this <laughs> this war imagery, uh, which is dealing with the transition, right? Remember we said, and I think in a, a lot of our conceptions, you've got this world as it is and then the next world as it's going to be, and it's like this instantaneous flash change. But where all of the war imagery comes from is this assumption that it it will be a process right and the, the hold on time out time out that's huge because that that changes how a lot of people probably myself included for a lot of years think about whatever the afterlife the, the good place you know for those who love jesus or children of god whatever like it was always this in an instant right when your breath like you know it all it all happens then like that was the that was the thing this changes everything Totally. And for a lot of us, it'll change everything for some of, for people who have been into (laughs) like end times theology in that world, this will sound actually like I'm affirming one side of, of that whole debate. I'm not, (laughs) um, but there are, there are those who basically are excited to join this like thousand year war thing. And, uh, and so what I'm going to say, if they're taking that literally, then, uh, and if they think I'm speaking literally, they're going to think we're kind of on the same page here, but it's not. But basically, so first step is the war image. So you have in the book of Revelation, and even where you get this thousand year number, right? And there's all this crazy (laughs) rapture junk about like the millennium. Uh, It's it's basically imagery uh, and picking a big round number to say it's going to be a period of time. It's not going to be an instantaneous moment. And again, I don't even, so the book of Revelation isn't pre- predicting this. It's, it's painting a, a picture. Um, the point of the picture of the book of Revelation, which we can get into some other time, is to, 
to give suffering Christians <laughs> some hope that one day it'll all be okay. It is not to try to spell out for them how it's going to happen or what the end of the, hmm. the world or whatever will be like. Um, but, but the picture is, uh, and, and it begins in the Gospels, is, well, actually, let's go back even further. So when I say Paul, Paul believed there's an origin story for us being at war. Okay, uh, we got into this before when we looked at Genesis six, and when you get into other other texts that aren't in the Protestant canon, uh, like the Book of Enoch, that tell similar stories expanded out in longer version. Uh, when you when you see the story of there's this garden and mankind's given rule, and they said <laughs> somehow we'll be like the Elohim. So we talked about it basically as a as a term for the kind of being who lives not on earth, but in the heavenly realm, uh, in, in heaven space. Um, and then all of a sudden you have this intruder show up in the garden, uh, that is likely a a symbolic picture of one of these Elohim, right? A a snake, a serpent, a dragon, uh, were common, uh, symbols for divine beings. And, the, the snake essentially tries to interrupt what has just happened, which is that God created a new space, earth space, that's apart from heaven space, and then created a new kind of being to rule that space. And uh, once you, you kind of try to see this stuff, you see it everywhere in, in, in the first few chapters of Genesis. But the whole idea is that human beings are, are earthlings, like, like dirt beings. So the, the point is, uh, that earth and and the term Adama in Hebrew, which basically means dirt, uh, or earth gets talked about uh, a lot in the book of Genesis. And there's a reason why Adam, (laughs) the name for human, uh, mankind, uh, is very similar to, to the dirt. And the whole idea of like, we come from the dirt and to the dirt we return uh, from dust to dust is is trying to play at this idea that God has created a new kind of space, which is symbolically uh, pictured as, as a, a dirt space, right? It's a material world. It's earth earthy. Yeah. You can grab it. You can hold it in your fingers kind of thing. It's not air space like the heavens. Uh, and then created a kind of being f- who that is of the essence of that space. Okay. So humans are literally considered like, like dirtlings. Like no one actually thought again, literally scientifically people were made of dirt. The point was that that human beings were of the essence of this world created to be in this world and to rule this world. Spirits, and we'll get into all the kind of complicated language stuff uh, later, but the, the spirits, <laughs> the Elohims, are made of air, breath, wind, spirit. They're, they're non-material, right? Ethereal. <laughs> and the beings that rule in that space are of the same or, or like substance, right? So what you're seeing in, in the early chapters of Genesis is this evidence of a cosmology which says you basically have... Had and the implication is that uh, potentially the that God's space <laughs> with the heavenly other heavenly beings is already in existence when the earth and the the garden 
uh, come into existence in Genesis, right? Mm. I think most of us picture uh, that God creates everything all at once. But uh, back in earlier episodes, if you remember, we looked at, like, what could it possibly mean uh, when it says, in our likeness, let's, let us make mankind in our image, right? Uh, there is a sense that, that there is a community in existence. And of course, Christians have said, oh, the Trinity, like, but that wouldn't have made sense for thousands of years, right? I think the idea is <laughs> there is a, there is a realm that exists and then a new realm is created, the earth realm, and a new kind of being, earthlings, are created to rule on that realm, in that realm. So Adam and then Adam and Eve, humans, <laughs> and the mother of all of the rest of the living world are cre created and given dominion to, to rule over the earth. And then when you see the serpent story, and then in Genesis 6, you have this strange story of gods coming down and having sex with women. And then what we traced out is the result of that is this semi-god half-God, half-human line that apparently people believed were really large. <laughs> so they were called giants, uh, these Nephilim giants, that then is this sub-story that is playing out throughout the, most of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, right, which ends with David finally, thousand years later, finally killing off the last of these divine beings, semi-divine beings, that the whole thing was a war to essentially the divine beings were the I think the implication, the most logical, sensible in, in implication is that the divine beings who are in charge of the divine realm, these spirit, air, wind, breath figures, uh, were jealous and envious that they weren't put in charge over this new earth dirt world and therefore staged their own coup against Adam and Eve, which is what we're seeing in, in Genesis 3, uh, to, to take that rule from them. Okay. I know that all sounds crazy, weird, and like it doesn't affect our daily lives at all. But when I say <laughs> that when Paul has an origin story for how humanity ever came to be <laughs> in a spiritual battle with cosmic beings, I mean, he's just reading the third page of the Bible and saying, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Mm. Right. <laughs> So what he believes, and then we talked later how there's this worldview that you see in Deuteronomy, you see in the Psalms, and you see it going on even uh, in Genesis 10 and 11, that there are other gods that God has appointed to rule over the nations of the world in his place. He has delegated these gods and allowed them to rule. The implication is that originally that wasn't part of the plan. Adam was supposed to rule. Human was supposed to rule. Uh, but human lost its right to rule. These other gods are appointed, and then Yahweh becomes the, the national regional god of Israel with the strange purpose, strange to our ears, that, that one day then God in Israel would reset things so that <laughs> Israel would take the rightful rule of human, Adam, and then these national gods would essentially be re removed from their positions, and humans would rule the world like we are supposed to, and God would be the God of all of the humans, like 
God was originally supposed to. I, we've covered this before, but I, and I know it sounds crazy every time. You kind of tracking with, with the baseline idea? Yeah, I'm tracking. And so you kind of reset our, the first few episodes that we ever did on this show saying, you know, what was the, what was the worldview? What is Genesis really about? The first, first few, few chapters of Genesis, what's it really about? And then you're saying that we need to understand that because otherwise we're not going to understand what biblical writers then going forward and writing in other places are actually talking about specifically Paul, because Paul had this worldview in his mind and he assumed his readers had this worldview in their mind. And so a lot of the verses, a lot of the things that we use to say other things, this is where I, I do think it actually has implications for our daily lives, because if we're taking these verses, these passages of Paul and saying, okay, so then this means that because this is the worldview that we have in our minds, our worldview, then we're probably completely off and coming up with things that, and making people do things, making ourselves do things that aren't even right, aren't even you know true to what Paul was even trying to say. But if we can try to approach it from the worldview that he had, and he assumed his readers had, then maybe this actually would change things and would change our, our day-to-day lives if we want to kind of try to uh, live in a way in keeping with this book. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think that's what we're trying to do. So uh, let me try to summarize uh, some data. So that's some of like the, the Genesis background, right? But then what you see in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament is, and there's some, so many uh, pieces uh, of evidence we could look at, but it's the, the basic idea is that, <laughs> here's, here's kind of the, the outline. So Elohim are a kind of beings that rule in the heavens, okay? Heaven. Okay. Is their home? So is that like an, is that an angel, or is it is it potentially angel demon? It doesn't necessarily mean they're good. It's just it's these beings, right? It's the kind the kind of beings that they are. Okay, okay. Yeah, there's separate sort of uh, histories and the development of ideas in terms of how yes, in the New Testament written in Greek, and then in our English translation, uh, what we see is the word angel. But what we're, what we're really often referring to, originally angel meant messenger, but they were messengers of this category of beings. And then that all got simplified to calling all of the, the versions of these beings angels. And then demons are sort of related, but have a whole separate history, which relates to those semi-god, half-being, giant things. It's all very, it's all very crazy, but, (laughs) uh, but our basic conception of like angels are like heavenly beings. That's, I think that's close enough, right? Like heavenly beings means they, that heaven, heavens, the skies, not earth is their home and their substance. There's a connection between the two. So, and, and that's who rules there. So Elohim rule in the heavens and and mankind, humans, earthlings, rule here on the earth. And we are of the earth, made of earth, and we live here in the earth, and we were supposed to rule here. Uh, and then Yahweh, the, I think the basic idea is that, that Yahweh, as, as the one true creator God, is overseeing and delegating both of these things, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, we talked about so many people are threatened by the idea that there are other divine beings because we th- we think that that means that God isn't God essentially. Um, but the basic idea, I think, in <laughs> in 
Old Testament Jewish theology was that God was overseeing delegates. So that's how things start. But then what we're looking at is that one of the pieces of the story that the whole Bible is based on is that the Elohim, or some of them, took over rule of both spheres. Okay? And that is essentially what the the serpent is doing. That's what the sons of God who come down to have sex with daughters of men are doing, is they are invading uh, earth spheres. In some language, it's they've transgressed their boundaries. They There was a, a boundary of what was rightfully theirs. It was the heavenly sphere, but they wanted both. So they performed a coup, and it was successful. And that's why in the New Testament, you see all the language calling the devil, this Satan figure, the the current ruler of the world. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's uh, the prince of the the air. Uh, he is a he is a a being or it is a being that rules in the heavens but has also taken over rule on earth. Not as an earth being, still as this kind of heavenly uh, being. But that's the idea. And so what Jesus is accomplishing that gets this story gets told in multiple chapters uh, over the course uh, of the Gospels is taking back that rule first over the earth and then over the heavens. And so like where this first shows up is the, we talked about how the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus's temptation is really more like test is, is a better word than temptation yeah. mm-hmm. where the specific <laughs> uh, pinnacle of the test is Satan offering to hand Jesus over all the rule of the entire world, which Satan currently possesses. That That's the idea, <laughs> right? Satan has it. It's his. It doesn't belong to him. It's not supposed to be his. Uh, it belongs, we first want to say it belongs to Jesus, but actually what I think we, we should first be saying is it belongs to us, to, to humans. That's the idea. And so uh, first, <laughs> Jesus proves himself worthy of inheriting that rule. And this will be important when we talk about the ethics and whether or not we're supposed to go to war. Jesus proves himself worthy of inheriting that rule by saying and proving that he doesn't need to hold on to it or grasp at it for himself. And he can wait for it to be given to him. In other words, he proves that he doesn't need the power. He's not power hungry. Uh, and only by proving that he's ultimately not power hungry does does God essentially uh, decide that Jesus is worthy to receive the power. So the same temptation that happens or set of tests that happens in the, in the wilderness is repeated then in the Garden of Gethsemane. When you have the scene of Jesus has all the power, right? He has the power to call in God's angels. He has the power to uh, to get himself off of the cross. He has the power to uh, to not drink the cup, right? Um, and and says no to all of those uses of power. Doesn't use any of his own power whatsoever uh, to and to the point of not even saving himself. And, and then is given what we're told in Matthew. He's given all authority in heaven and on earth. Uh, in John, it says Jesus was given, all, uh, given authority over all people. Uh, basically, what we see in the, in the picture, uh, when we did a stuff on atonement theology, we talked about how important Jesus' own parable of this binding the strong man idea was. Like the way he envisioned what he was doing and the way he boiled this down into a story was there's a, there's a man in charge of a space, 
like a home. And the and he is holding prisoners captive in that home. And the only way, if your goal is to go rescue and liberate those prisoners... This was the like, creative diversion one. You got to like distract the strong man, tie him up, so you can get in and, and take over. Totally. And, and why can't, can't <laughs> we just say, why doesn't he go kill the strong man? Well, then we're back to this thing of the idea is that it's a being that cannot be killed. <laughs> right? So, so much, actually, of Jewish and Christian theology is based on and contingent with philosophical issues based on the idea of beings that exist in the world and are wreaking havoc on the world that can't die. So, just right here, <laughs> from the get-go, if you don't actually believe in the existence of beings that are wreaking havoc in in this realm and in the heavenly realm that can't be killed, the logic of much of the theology is is missing. Now, again, I'm not trying to get you to believe that that's true, right? I'm just trying to point out that Jesus believed it was true, Paul believed it was true, and everybody around them, even non-Jews, believed this to be true in different different forms. So you can't, like, take your worldview and then try to adopt their their verses you can't take their verses and passages and try to just plop it on top of your worldview that's not fair to what they were trying to say you don't have to necessarily believe the worldview that they held but you can't just try to mix it all together and and then come out with the thing you want to come out with on the other side right totally right so so you have uh, these chapters where while we're watching jesus's life uh and his, his mission unfold in the Gospels. We're seeing these different chapters of this revolution, or at least the, the beginning of the revolution. Um, and so there's actually, and, and I think Luke pays attention to the role of power and this revolution idea. Remember in the last episode, we talked about how Luke specifically uh, drew attention to the reversal and economic situations, right? You've got a rich person and a poor person, and they're going to be switched. Well, it's also Luke... Uh, who gives us the most detail of Jesus sending out his disciples to, uh, (laughs) many of the English translations says, with power and authority to cast out demons and heal diseases. Uh, Really, I think that it's better translated as like, with the ability to do this and and the authority and the power to do this. And this, (laughs) when this happens is when we see the line that I saw Satan fall like lightning. So it's when more people than just Jesus are given power to engage in a kind of spiritual war, which they're not killing anybody. They're not fighting anybody. They specifically are told not to have any weapons. They don't even have many belongings. They actually go out in utter poverty and vulnerability dependent on the hospitality of of those they're going to. But the kind of war they're engaging in is against demons. And again, they can't kill demons, right? They just cast them out. That's the whole, again, the whole idea of exorcism is based on the fact that demons don't die. They just, that's why, for instance, there's a scene where they go from uh, this person who's got a legion of demons in them to the pigs. Yeah. Yeah. Like, is that just a weird story? No, the uh, the con- conception is that they're going to move yes, from it one is a, host. It is a weird story, too. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is. But there's an underlying logic, which is actually weirder than the story. You know what I mean? Like that logic that there yeah. is a kind of being, 
and that the kind of being is in existence because long ago gods had sex with women that now there's a kind of being that has to have a host to exist in (laughs) and therefore when you see people around who are uh, exhibiting crazy behavior and psychosis and whatnot that there's a good chance that there are like a host a legion an army of viral beings living in them (laughs) that is all (laughs) very strange right (laughs) yeah right it's especially uh to our to our modern sensibilities anyway yeah when when jesus's disciples first the 12 and then the 70 are enabled to go out and participate in this spiritual battle to both cure people of disease and free and liberate people from a kind of an oppressive uh, demonic force, Jesus says that is a a kind of success uh, in doing the same thing that he he had used the parable for, this binding up the strong man, this Satan idea. That's when he sees Satan falling. So Jesus is... (laughs) is gaining this power to engage in this war. Then he's uh, essentially recruiting others to to participate in this war. And at the end, after Jesus is resurrected, you see that all power, not just here on earth, but also in heaven, uh, is, is granted to Jesus. And then you get other language of been given the keys to the kingdom. And this is what all of the language around thrones, right? You got Jesus' own friends arguing about who, when he comes into his kingdom and he's sitting on his throne, who's going to sit next to him, right? Uh, it's the language of crown, like this idea of getting a crown in heaven. Like a crown is a royal power symbol, right? It's not just like, <laughs> a, it's not like a Boy Scout badge of honor. Um, it's, a, it's a power symbol. It means someone with a crown is someone who rules. Uh, all of this imagery is about Jesus being the new Adam, the, the human who is actually going to take back humans' right to rule on, on earth. Uh, but, but then here's where it gets a little, little crazier. So like I just said, there's a tension given that Jesus is given all authority in heaven and on earth to, to rule. Uh, and that through Jesus, mankind is going to inherit the rule of the earth, which, remember, the idea is that this heavenly realm has taken over, right? So the nations all had their gods, and then this, by the time you get to the New Testament, there's this idea of a singular Satan figure uh, who is the ruler of the earth who needs to be deposed. But then, (laughs) I've touched on this a few times, you see stuff like in Paul where he just casually says, don't you know you will judge angels? Again, that's the way of saying, don't you know that you will judge or rule over, uh, in the New Testament, you use the language angels. If Paul were writing in Old Testament Hebrew, it would be Elohim. Don't you know you are going to rule over those heavenly beings? Hmm. So you start with, you have two realms and two kinds of beings set to rule in, in their own unique realms. The heavenly beings then take over both realms and mankind needs to take back its own rule. But then the conception becomes actually through Jesus because, because, and try to grasp this, 
I could point you to a hundred verses, but just try to grasp the basic uh, conception here. But we don't have time for that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, Jesus is, is a human, right? Historical orthodoxy is emphasizing that Jesus was fully human, truly human, a human being who walked around, right? Uh, a brown man living in uh, poverty in uh, the ancient Near East. And yet, <laughs> Jesus is conceived of as ascending to go live in heaven, the heavens, on a, on a throne in heaven space. And the gospels actually, some of them, Matthew, Luke, go out of their way to, to give us some little vignettes of the sort of transition life and body of the resurrected Jesus, which is somehow both human, it's material, right? You can stick your finger in a hole in him, uh, somehow c- continuous with, with his, his life and even his, his wounds, right? He still, he still has holes, <laughs> Uh, from being killed. But then he's also like going through walls and going to other places quickly and like all this other weird stuff too. Right. Right. And it starts with going through walls. And then there's also a sense where he's recognizable, but not recognizable. Uh, But then can also ascend to heaven. And so, so he's in both of these realms. He's, he's of the, of the dirt of the earth. And then also of the heavenly space, Elohim. Totally. So, (laughs) and we're supposed to pick up on that because it's supposed to further emphasize that they believed this worldview. And then we're supposed to just remember back to Genesis and the whole thing. And we're supposed to just know that. Right. Okay, it's Future Nate again. I'm going to go ahead and cut things here. So this will be the end of the first part of the conversation. Come back next time to hear the rest where we talk about maybe the Mormons had it right or had it more right. And so we'll get into that. It's okay if your head is hurting right now. Mine is a little bit. The second part of this conversation is a little bit more practical and maybe a little easier to understand. So come on back next time to wrap up this conversation with us. If you have any questions or thoughts, you can email us contact at almostheretical.com. And if you want to support the show and get our second podcast, Utterly Heretical, which is for supporters only, you can do that at almostheretical.com. Just click on give or support on that page, or you can just go right to patreon.com slash almost radical. Catch you next time. Peace, y'all.